he really got me. You know, I think it's because he was gay. Got the nuances more. Get me a gay, Mickey. Gotta get a gay. Well, hello, and welcome to another episode of In the Details, a celebration of nuance where each week I clean out on all of the acting choices, micro moments, and magic in the minutiae that make a scene great. My name is Colin Trucker, and your name is hard to pronounce, and it's so nice to have you back. Uh, this, of course, is going to be part two of Cherishing Valerie, uh, which is, uh, I'm just living my dream right now, talking about Valerie Cherish every week. Um, but before we get into part two of Cherishing Valerie, uh, I don't know, let's just start with the important questions, like how are you? How was your week? How was your week starting? Because I guess this came out on Monday, so your week just got started. Um, my week, my life, things are good. Um, you are probably wondering updates on the air fryer. And I guess I can tell you that my entire life now is, will it air fry? Can I put it in the air fryer? What happens if I put it in the air fryer? How does it turn out if you air fry it? Uh, I have mostly been trying that out with like different frozen foods that are not going to be surprising. It's like, oh, I, I, I bet that egg roll is going to come out like an egg roll. Um, I bet those fries are going to be like the other fries you made. Uh, chicken fingers, yeah, this is made for that. But I have also been putting chocolate chip cookie dough in there just to see what happens, which is not... Um, no, no great mystery. There's YouTube videos. I've already kind of like checked to see if this is possible or if it'll burn down the entire apartment building. Um, they turn out fine. I don't think I'm doing them right because I think, um, you, I don't know. I don't know how you, I don't like to follow the directions. Men, you know, they don't like to follow directions. Oh God. Um, no, I, I, but I don't know if that's a man thing. I think that might be like an Aquarius thing. I just can't follow directions. Um, so I just have to do it on my own. And, uh, I have been just kind of experimenting, and what happens is they're kind of crispy on the outside, mushy on the inside. But, like, sometimes you kind of want that. And uh, if you mix it with ice cream, well, it's really good. Um, anyway, this is probably apropos of nothing, but the other night, I was having one of those nights where I was like, what do I want to watch? Ugh, okay, let's let's do the routine. Let's do the Netflix routine. Let's, like, look at all the little uh, like little thumbnails and then, like, not click on anything. Uh, but instead, I did it on Amazon Prime. And for those of you who have Amazon Prime, and you know that I do, because as I mentioned last week, I take advantage of its free shipping so that I can buy things like air fryers. Um, but they have a, an interesting selection of movies and TV shows. And um, not bad. Interesting sounds like a euphemism for bad. But uh, it's just a, a strange collection. There's just some weird shit in there that's like, how did this get on Amazon Prime? Uh, but anyway... I um, didn't feel like committing to anything, but I kind of got into this this kind of rabbit hole of just watching the trailers um, because a lot of the Amazon Prime movies, like there's a little button there you just hear, watch trailer. And it's like, oh, great. I don't have to commit to anything except for like a minute and a half of hyper edited content. I can get into that. Uh, so 2018. So I just like spent the whole night, well, not the whole, many, not many, oh, no, I spent a period of time watching trailers for different found footage horror movies because that was kind of like the the rabbit hole I fell into. I, I don't remember how it started. I don't know what the first one was I clicked on, but what I came to discover is there's a lot of found footage horror movies. I mean, like, you would think, you would think that somebody who has the idea of, hey, let's let's take a group of paranormal investigators and send them into, like, an abandoned anything hospital house you know warehouse outhouse whatever who cares um and we'll have them film everything you know and let's do that that seems original you'd think that those people might look to see if there was anyone else who had just done the same thing and realize there's like five movies that came out i think in the same month of the same year that's about a group of paranormal investigators that go to a haunted house and film it and things don't go well um and you know i I don't hate this model. It kind of makes me think of like in the in the eighties, like the slasher movie genre kind of exploded. And no matter how many times people, you know, were sent into the woods on a camping trip for the weekend, only to kind of you know get butchered one by one, there was another 
you know, van load of kids in another movie heading that way the next week, you know? Um, I'm okay with that. I think I think where my objection is, because I think that these, I think that the found footage kind of movies can be really, uh, they can be good. They can be really effective, I think. They can also be really nauseating or really boring or really hokey, or there's always the question of like, why are you still filming, you know? And how are you getting so many good shots? But forgetting all of those those issues. My biggest problem with these movies is that usually, and I haven't like watched every one of them, but for the, all of the ones I have seen, nobody ever survives. And, and uh, duh, right? Like, cause the whole concept is like, and then they found just their footage two days later. And this is the only evidence of where these missing people are. And it's like missing people. I just watched them all get killed in this 90 minute movie. Like, how do you not know where these people are? A bunch of fucking ghosts killed them. Um, but everybody dies. Everybody. And I just, I can't, I've mentioned this in the past on in the details is I like horror movies, but I don't like the violence and I don't like the blood and the guts. It just, you know, call me crazy. I just don't like seeing people get killed. Uh, but I, um, I also can't get together with a movie where nobody survives because I feel like, what was the point? Why did I watch this? Why did I sit here for two hours and watch people die and then nothing came of it? You know what I mean? Like, no, there was no, there was no point. There's no point to it, you know, uh, which makes me think about, you know, if we're going to tie this somehow to Valerie Cherish and the comeback in reality television, you know, it, it is kind of like watching a, one of these like, uh, you know, fear factor kind of reality shows or anyone where people are kind of put through the ringer and then don't win. You know, I even feel that way with like Wheel of Fortune, you know, they finally get to that final spin. They or you know, the the. They got to guess the letters. They, I, I always think guess M, guess R. No, R's, R's in there because it's R-S-T-L-N-E. Um, maybe an A or an E. No, an E's already in there. You know, I, think what we're, I think what we're coming to a conclusion together here is that I would not do well on Wheel of Fortune. I would panic. Um, but even watching that, if somebody doesn't win, I'm like, oh, God, we came all this way. You know, I have never seen Lord of the Rings, but I think they get the rings at the end. What if they don't get the rings? What if Harry Potter doesn't graduate? Not not to create a Donna Martin situation. I also have never seen, uh, I've seen a few of the Harry Potter movies, but I've never read any of the books. And I know, I know, I know. Don't send me any emails. I know. I'll get to it. You can send me emails. I take that back. But like, trust me, I realize I'm missing out on something. It's just... In about 10 years, I'm going to start reading them. And then I'm going to tell everybody, have you, did you realize how good Harry Potter was? Because, whoa, uh, it's really good. Um, anyway, as per usual, this all has nothing to do with anything. Um, but I just thought I'd catch you up and just chit-chat with you for a little bit before we kind of dive into the main event. Before we kind of dive into the details, which is the name of this podcast. It's kind of like, um, I always think of this as like Mystery Science Theater 3000 when they like, Everything gets a little shaky, and then they have to, like, run to the theater. I don't know why. It, it's such an emergency situation. We got, well, we got to go. We got to go. But I always feel like they kind of plunge into the world of, of commenting on these movies. And I think we're kind of doing the same thing here and in the details. We're going to, you know, chit-chat for a little bit, and then we're going to, like, and we're going to go in. We're going to go dive into the details. All right. And we're going to do it right now, actually. It's a meta moment. We're going to do it right now. We're going to go into the details, and we're going to continue our conversation on Valerie Cherish. Now remember, this is part two of three. So after the end of this episode, if you're like, oh my God, I can't believe you haven't talked about X, just remember, I'm well aware. And it's coming. But anyway, I'm very excited to continue exploring who I think Valerie is. Um, so without further ado, why don't we head into the details and pick up with part two of Cherishing Valerie. to answer the question of who is Valerie Cherish is essentially an elaborate shell game. Valerie isn't necessarily trying to obscure who she is. She isn't out to deceive us or to get away with something. She's trying to preserve herself, to preserve an image. Valerie's frantic efforts to control everything may be cringe-inducing or aggravating, but at the heart of it, 
She's just trying to bail water out of the lifeboat before it sinks. We talked a little bit last week about Valerie's obsession with what other people think of her and how Donna catches her in the act in Palm Springs. We also talked a bit about addiction last week. Worrying about what other people think is an addiction. It's this delusional notion that suggests if you just keep doing this, you will feel better. It creates a version of reality for you to live in. Yes, it's very true that a lot of people don't seem to like Valerie. Or, more specifically, she rubs people the wrong way. She wears out her welcome. She is perhaps what you might call a small doses friend. But that's depending on which version of Valerie she's being. I think what we're really talking about here is the self-produced Valerie. The one that comes out when Val is in her own head, grabbing clumsily at the controls and saying, here, let me drive this thing. We see this the most when she's on set, for example, when she gets nervous around Polly G or wants Jimmy's approval. It eases up with the cast of Room and Board because she feels secure with them. They're the new kids, and so she feels like they see her as the cool veteran who knows the ropes. She feels accepted by them. We learn a lot about Valerie through the people in her life. Which makes sense. We're watching this entire experience through the people in her life. The truth, the reality, isn't the one she's performing. Reality is when Mark occasionally glances impatiently at the camera, or gives an almost sort of Jim Halpert-style grin. It's when Mickey watches in horror while Valerie plays off the humiliation and pain of seeing the writers pretending to have comical sex with her in the writer's room. Reality is Jimmy telling Valerie to stop worrying about room and board. That is not her show. The comeback is her show, and room and board is just the car that takes her there. That is some of the most clear-eyed reality portrayed in this entire show. There's something I trust about the people who surround Valerie, even the ones who shouldn't be trusted. I think it's because I have no problem understanding how they feel. They either wear their hearts on their sleeves or are wildly incapable of hiding it. It's like the whole open secret that Mickey is gay. It's this great running gag throughout the middle of the season after Juno offers to set Mickey up with another man. Mickey can't understand where she'd get the impression that he's gay. And then, of course, you know, goes on to say things like, J'adore, Cafe Montana. Mickey, have your ID? Right here in my mani pack. Valerie, look at these little sweeties. Oh, someone's getting flowers. Oh, look at that. Oh, who are those from? Mickey. Well, I don't know. I'm not saying. Read the card. Let's see. Congratulations from your favorite gay. Oh, Mickey. Guy. Favorite guy. Yeah. And each time, Valerie will almost politely glance at the camera as if she's in on this joke with Jane, or with us, really, of all the ways Mickey is being so overtly queer. But Valerie doesn't ever challenge him, never pulls him aside and says, you know, I, I think maybe with the, you know, the, the hand fan and all the rings, yeah, just I just think it might be reading a little, you know. And then quickly mimicking a limp wrist before remembering the cameras. She allows Mickey the dignity of his delusion. And I think that's both sweet and ironic, because, of course, that's exactly what Mickey does for her as well. That's what a lot of people do for Valerie. This week, we're going to talk about three very important people along for the journey of Valerie's comeback. Juna, Mickey, and Jane. Through each of them, we see a different version of Valerie come out based on who she wants them to see, but also who they let her be, or what part of her they have access to. Do they enable her at times? Absolutely. Does she try to manipulate them at some point in order to get ahead? 100%. But as we discussed last week, the important thing about Valerie is that she isn't mean-spirited. She may be self-absorbed, but when her heart shines through, we understand why these three people stay with her for the duration and why they also want her to succeed.
Good morning, Gina. Hi, Jane. Hi, guys. <laughs> oh, shit, I fucked up. I'm sorry. I'm not supposed to talk to the crew. Oh, no, that's okay. Don't worry about it. Okay. Well, let's see what Aunt Sassy's up to. Juna Milken is blonde, thin, perky, and kind. She's reminiscent of Jessica Lange's Julie in Tootsie, but younger, fresher, and, and more wide-eyed. By the way, it would not be in the details if I did not mention that Jessica Lange won the Best Supporting Actress in 1983 for Tootsie. Um, I haven't seen it in a while, so I can't comment, but I'm sure she's amazing. Anyway, uh, Malin Ackerman as Juna is pitch perfect. It, it'd be easy for Juna to just seem kind of dumb, but Malin Ackerman's version feels more like Juna is hungry to trust someone. Her heart is squarely in the right place, even if she isn't always seeing what's really going on around her. Juna is the lead singer of a rock band and is on the verge of explosive fame with her first TV gig. It's kind of like everyone secretly knows that Juna is the rocket that's going to take off into space and room and board is just all that other stuff that falls off the rocket and lands somewhere in a field in Cape Canaveral. Jimmy, the perennial smartest person in the room, says in episode three that she's the money. She is, wait for it, TV's next it, girl. Room and Board is not the triumphant return of Valerie Cherish. Valerie is novelty casting. She's the and at the end of the opening credits. She's the Estelle Getty on The Golden Girls, the Meshach Taylor on Designing Women, the Catherine Hellman on Who's the Boss. She is just slightly removed from the core cast. We see that in episode two at the photo shoot when Valerie is stuck way over in Siberia while the four kids are huddled up together. She could be cropped out in a second. We had talked last week about inclusion, about Valerie feeling a part of Hollywood and an insider in this industry, one of the ones who made it and gets to participate in the entertainment world. Despite the fact that she is the star of her own reality show, the entertainment world she knows and honors is sitcom television. And so that's the spotlight she's focused on. When Jimmy tells her very clearly that this is not her show, what he doesn't explicitly say is that it is Juna's show. Tom even says it in the first episode, how Juna's role in the show is totally safe, even with the rewrites, because everyone loves her. She's a star. Juna's stardom, I think, leads to one of the first real cracks in Valerie's delusion. It's like the end of the Stepford Wives when Joanna comes face to face with her new and improved replacement. Valerie's role has been rewritten, not just in Room and Board, but in Hollywood. TV's It Girl has been recast with Juna Milken. Last week I mentioned similarities to Joan Crawford and Valerie's imitations of life for the press. But I, I think with Juna there is potential for Valerie to go full-on Margot Channing. But Juna is far from an Eve Harrington. She has no ulterior motive. She isn't trying to take the spotlight. She's not even sure she deserves it. Valerie is a veteran TV star she associates with her childhood. Valerie is the false idol of celebrity in Juna's eyes. And that is exactly what Valerie wants. So why would she just turn on Juna or, or be resentful when she can adjust, adapt, and recast herself as Juna's mentor. The dynamic really forms in episode three when Juna wants to take Valerie out to lunch at the Ivy after missing Valerie's first day cast bonding lunch. Uh, there's a fun little nuance here. During that cast lunch with the rest of, the, of room and board, Valerie admits that she had chosen that place she, they went to because she thought they'd like it, but she was originally thinking of the Ivy, which then gets this like really enthusiastic response from everybody. So then Valerie says, well, I practically have my own table at the Ivy. And then tells Juna the next day that she had to change the location of their lunch date because she couldn't get a reservation there. We see at lunch that Juna is deluded in her own way. You know, she doesn't see her own stardom. And, uh, you know, she thinks she's the worst one in the room. I think in a small way, Valerie recognizes that in herself. But she's also starting to recognize and see Juna's reality and all of its potential for fame, which is, of course, her drug of choice. And so Valerie decides that if she can't have that reality herself, she'll cleave to Juna so that the fame has no choice but to intersect with her journey towards it. Listen, baby girl, you obviously don't know this business yet, but I do. All right, so I'm going to help you out. Okay. Okay, now you and I are about to get swept up into a whole lot of success. 
okay? But with that comes a whole lot of ugly, you know? Because everything we say, everything we do is being watched. Right, the cameras. <laughs> oh, no, tabloids. Oh. Oh, yeah, and they're going to come gunning for us. We're the money, you know? So let's avoid who stood up who at what restaurant, you know? Because that's what sells papers. You know, so let's, all right, you know, let's make a pack here and now, you and I, that we are going to watch out for each other. Oh, God. Val, I'm so happy to hear you say that. Oh. Because sometimes I just feel like I need someone to help me out when I'm... I'm sorry, little... put a pin in that. It's sort of devastating to watch, like most of the comeback, because you see the relief Juna feels and how much she genuinely wants Valerie as an ally and needs someone to watch her back in, in ways that she may not even realize yet. But this is truly Valerie at her most hungry. She cuts Juna off because, of course, there's a paparazzi gad flying nearby, and she, I think, genuinely believes it's for her. Here we go. Photographer. Yeah, he's been trying to get my attention for a while. Juna! Can I get a shot, Juna? Oh, God, I'm so sorry. How does he even know who you are? Um, I have a rock band, and we're sort of known in L.A. Oh. Yeah. Thank you, but we're having lunch right now. I'm oh, sorry. Juna, come on, come on. Just give me one. Give me one. You know what? Let's just give him one, and he'll never leave us alone. Okay. Okay? <laughs> Wait, Wait. Towards the end when she's posing with Juna and pulling her hair out of her mouth, that, that imploring way she says, wait, it's such a tiny detail, but it's it's this vicious side of celebrity Valerie just peeking out for, for a nanosecond because she has exactly what she wants in this moment. She's endured another series of humiliations this week, but for hanging in there and adapting, she's won a moment in the press with a rising star. She's found a new avenue of acceptance, a new opportunity to feed her fame addiction. The tension of all of that is so thick, I think, that even an out-of-place strand of hair feels like something that could send her into a total meltdown. I want to compare this to another moment later in Season 1, in Episode 11, when the cast goes to the People's Choice Awards. The show is nominated for Best New Comedy. We're all nominated, as, as Valerie insists, but they already know they're not going to win. However, Juna has been nominated for Best New Actress. Let's assume if this isn't the exact same award Valerie won in 1991, it's close enough, and she does win. The entire experience for Valerie is, as per usual, a series of humiliations. We'll talk about the backwards dress in a bit. Uh, but the end of the episode shows a really interesting evolution in her relationship with Juna. Valerie has basically been trying to capitalize on Juna's fame the entire day trying and failing to land those red carpet moments, the Access Hollywood interview, all of that inclusion in the Hollywood system. Even Juna's attempt to thank Valerie in her acceptance speech gets cut off. It's, it's another week of debasing challenges and the reality competition show that is the comeback. Valerie and Juna leave the award show together at the end of the night, and Juna convinces a security guard to let them exit out the back to avoid all of the paparazzi, much to Valerie's dismay, if she could be any further dismayed. They get outside as the red carpet is literally being rolled up under them, and a photographer, once again, like during their first lunch together, comes out of nowhere begging for a picture. Hold it, hold it. That's a great shot. Oh. Just, just look over here. Okay. <laughs> oh, wait, Mickey, Mickey. There's a great little moment with Jane and a gift bag here, but we'll get to that later. I love when uh, Valerie and Juna just continue on to their cars, but the cameras aren't following them. So we just see them walking away together in the distance. Of course, Val's still mic'd, so we can hear what is the reality of their relationship, of what it can be. Oh, yeah, we well, gotta be careful with that, though. Oh, used a base from a goodie bag once? Yeah. Oh, oh, God. Uh, yeah. So what are you gonna do with this? I don't know. Um, maybe I'll give it to my parents. Oh, good for you. They'll have a whole room by the time you're done, huh? You know what? I didn't call for the car. Did you call to get no. your car? 
I didn't bring my purse. No, I brought my purse, but I can't fit my cell phone in here. <laughs> Shoot. Well, well, maybe Mickey knows. I saw a limo over there. That's yours. Where's mine? You, you can come with go us. Go with you. I'll go yeah. with you. Yeah, no one will care. Oh, we'd love for you to come with us. That would be fun. I think it's really important that Valerie believes she's off camera here. Valerie is so calm, so relaxed. She's not focused on her image or what Juna could be doing to help her get her next hit of fame. You could say that this is a satiated addict, the irresistible urges have been quieted, but I think it has a lot more to do with being off camera, being present instead of trying to be in front of and behind the camera at the same time, trying to control, as Donna says in Palm Springs, how this is all coming across. We get a glimpse of the Valerie we see in full view at the end of season two. Off-camera Valerie. While I am, yes, actively trying to not talk about season two, I do finally just want to briefly mention, to complete a sort of triptych of Juna moments, that scene between Juna and Val at her pre-Golden Globes party in the last episode. The entire scene is brilliant. Everything between them is said in subtext, in sentences that don't get finished, in truths that can kind of only really be muttered. Juna is, of course, 10 years older, wiser, more experienced. She far eclipses Valerie now, and she sees her. Valerie is doing everything she can to bob and weave past everything. The, the, the fact that Mickey is sick, that she involved herself in seeing Red, and, and now her marriage to Mark is on the rocks. She's no longer fooling Juna. Baby girl is all grown up. Juna doesn't call her out. Again, the dignity of delusion. But instead embraces Valerie and won't let go. I think of Juna's reality at lunch 10 years ago, feeling that she had found a friend in Valerie, someone who promised to look out for her. And so I think that as Juna's hug goes on and on and she's just holding Valerie against her, I think what she's doing in that moment above everything else is, is really, it's this full-bodied attempt on her part to say to Valerie, I love you and I have your back now. Valerie may have been looking for fame from Juna 10 years ago, but what she ended up finding was a really good friend. Mickey's here. I'm gonna get the door. Ding well, dong, Avon calling. What? I'm Ding sorry. dong, Avon calling. Oh, <laughs> very good. This is Mickey. He's funny. <laughs> I'm great. My close up, Mr. DeMille. <laughs> Mickey was my hairdresser on I Knit. So. 97 episodes of Bliss. <laughs> Mickey and Red shared a heyday at one point and have been symbiotically keeping each other afloat over the years. He probably styled her for all of those post-IMIT TV movies, but over time, the gigs were less professional and more domestic. Valerie probably hired Mickey to do her hair for Christmas parties with Mark's firm or some kind of catered Thanksgiving situation if a lot of people were going to be there. Valerie hasn't needed Mickey professionally for many years, but she absolutely needs him in her life. Mickey lets Valerie still be the sitcom star of 1991. He treats her as if the shine never wore off her star. He laughs at her jokes, he happily takes on her demands, and he never questions the level of self-importance she feels. But Mickey isn't just clinging desperately onto a fading TV star for money or attention. Valerie allows him to still be, in some way, a stylist to the stars and to maintain his own sense of inclusion. She lets him be whoever he was in the early 90s, and, and even before that. I imagine Mickey having a fairly successful career in the 80s, quaffing looks for the likes of Delta Burke, Bonnie Franklin, Meredith Baxter pre-Bernie. I imagine him being old friends with Susan St. James and confidants with Jim J. Bullock. 
Valerie Cherish, however, is his best friend. In many ways, the, the way Mickey sees Valerie sums up how she wants everyone else to see her. She wants them all to love her enough to give her a casual nickname like Red. As much as Mickey loves Valerie, he is also her witness. Mickey is always keeping an eye on Valerie. The number of times he rearranges her hair in what seems like a totally meaningless way, it's just this routine they like to do that makes her feel like a star and him feel needed. But it's also this metaphor for how closely Mickey is watching her and watching out for her. We see it even in episode one after that confrontation with Jimmy where he tells her she's not it anymore. The cameras try to follow Valerie and get her reaction, and Mickey stands in the way and he says, maybe not now. We see this later in the season finale when the heavily edited first episode of The Comeback airs, and Valerie storms out of her viewing party in humiliation. Mickey holds back the camera and says, that's quite enough, with a sort of brewing disappointment that really only comes from having watched all of this unfold. The comeback would be even harder to watch if Valerie was left alone to navigate the many embarrassments she endures, but Mickey is very much her protector at times. I love what happens at the People's Choice Awards when Valerie discovers on the red carpet that she's wearing her dress backwards. Mickey is attending as Juna's date and is already salty because Valerie wasn't allowed to use him as her stylist. It's, uh, it's jealousy, but it's also fear, like feeling threatened or outmoded. Not for nothing, but Valerie looks gorgeous, and it is kind of a relief to see her in different hair, but that's all I'll say about that. Uh, of course, it all turns into a meltdown moment on the red carpet for Valerie when she meets Project Runway winner and designer of her dress, Jay McCarroll. Hello, 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 my designer. What do you think? Sexy, huh? Oh, God. Uh, it's, it's backwards. What? You have the dress on backwards. I thought it was for the cleavage. No, no, no. It's never, never practice on the Never. You know what? Go and... Flip the dress around. Flip your head around. I, I, I oh, have go, to change it. Go I change. have to. You are clear about it. Yeah, you're saying. Mickey, Mickey, I need your help. What? Is your new hairstylist not being able to? Never mind. Your dress is on. Let's find a place. Yeah. What I love is the way Mickey immediately drops his grudge when he sees that Valerie's in a real panic. And he jumps into the kind of calm, reassuring action that she needs. Mickey may see her as the star, but he also sees the real Valerie underneath. He sees her get scared and can be a rock when she starts to lose control. I think one of the most important Mickey and Valerie scenes happens in episode five when Valerie sees the Entertainment Weekly cover story that reality TV is dying and her success hinges on exploitation. No one is going to watch a reality show with dignity. Valerie begins to feel the walls closing in, especially later when they're filming or returning sheets. Wow, this is boring. Just stop, Jane. Just stop. Nothing's happening. You know, no one's going to want to watch this. Just keep going. Something will happen. Well, what? What's going to happen? Huh? What do you think? Sales girl can burst into flames? You know. Nothing's happening, Jane. Nothing's going to happen. It's just... No offense. You know. Not... Is there something wrong? I think somebody needs an iced latte. There's a Starbucks right down the street. Let's go, Red. That's, yeah. Just take a break. Much like the moment with Juna at the People's Choice Awards, Valerie believes she's off camera when they're at Starbucks as she starts to open up to Mickey. Did you see this, Mickey? Valerie, cherish. And you're enough. 
You reading a book is enough. You crossing the street is enough. Trust me, sweetheart. You have always been and will always be enough. Yeah. Yeah. No, you're right. You're right. I don't need Saxon stunts. My comeback will be enough, of course. Yeah. I'm silly. Thank you, Mickey. Knowing that every little detail is planned out in this show, it's it's interesting to see when Mickey is able to break through to her. When he says, you crossing the street is enough, Valerie starts to stir out of a trance, like unwind from the spiraling. We just see her blink and, and shake her head slightly. There are, but there are so few actresses like Lisa Kudrow who can make those two gestures profoundly interesting and layered. But uh, we see that Valerie is now starting to hear what Mickey is saying. Uh, she turns and then she's facing him when he's saying that she is enough and has always been enough. Mickey has said this before. Mickey knows that Valerie needs to hear this constantly. Like so many people, present company included, there is the persistent fear of not being enough, the wound of not being enough. That is what fuels Valerie's entire journey. I truly believe that Mickey is speaking from the heart, too, and, and from the part of him that sees the real Valerie, the Valerie without her hair done, without her illusions. He can see when she's starting to break, and while part of it is fueled by that idea of preserving her celebrity image, I think he's also preserving her dignity, even in the moments when she's willing to sacrifice it. I think it's because he knows that deep down, Valerie feels like an outsider. And I'm assuming Mickey has experienced that firsthand himself. I, I think it's part of what drew them together beyond the hair and makeup station. He sees that outsider in Valerie, and so he reaffirms for her every day that while she may be clawing at the spotlight in Hollywood, she'll always have top billing with him. I can't not mention season two when talking about Mickey because it's really when we discover that Mickey is in some ways the heart of the show. Robert Michael Morris, who made his TV debut as Mickey, and I can't imagine anyone else playing this character, was actually sick with stage four melanoma during the filming of season two. Lisa Kudrow and Michael Patrick King were aware of this and decided to just embrace the reality of it by folding it into Mickey's story. I think it just lends even more weight to the end of the second season, which means that, yes, it is possible for that episode to be even more devastating than it already is. I love the character of Mickey. But I also love the mere concept of Valerie having this quirky, loyal sidekick in the form of an aging gay hairdresser. I also love the fact that the role was written with Robert Michael Morris in mind. He was Michael Patrick King's former college drama teacher. He died in May of 2017. I'd like to believe that there will eventually be a third season of The Comeback, or some new iteration of Valerie someday, but I just don't know how she's gonna do it without Mickey. Well, I can't, I can't go without Mickey. Have to have Mickey. Jane is more than just the name of the comeback's producer. Jane is a code word. It's a sort of bird call with different pitches and intonations that mean different things. It means something if Valerie says, Jane, versus Jane, Jane. Two Janes means business. Two Janes means Valerie needs to know she's being heard. Jane Benson was written specifically for Laura Silverman. And again, I can't imagine anyone else being Jane. There is nothing affected or unnatural about her performance. It creates this really striking contrast every time she's interacting with Valerie at her most on. An important thing to remember about Jane going into this is that at the outset, it's just a job for her. This doesn't mean any of what it means to Valerie. This is an opportunity for Jane to have a show on primetime network television. This may not have been Jane's dream, 
but it could fund your dreams. Jane goes on to later win an Oscar for a documentary about lesbians and the Holocaust, so one can assume following around a washed-up actress for a couple of months wasn't meant to be the pinnacle of her career. But much like how Jimmy explains to Valerie, this is the car that gets her there. Jane is also our proxy in the comeback. She's really the only one who is seeing the version of this story that we see. Each cameraman captures one angle, but Jane sees all angles. Jane sees what Valerie doesn't want us to see. Jane sees what is lovable about Valerie. Valerie is a moving target when it comes to exposing her reality, but Jane develops an intuitive sense of how to catch her in the act. Some of that certainly could come from training and and school and experience in documentary filmmaking, but I think it's a lot more organic than that. Despite herself, Jane becomes invested in Valerie. I don't think that exonerates her from the final product of the comeback. She may have not been editing the footage, but she knew it was important to capture things like Valerie saying, I never thought I'd work again, because that was the kind of content the network was looking for. It's also probably the truth. I think Jane is like one of those spies in an espionage thriller who falls in love with the woman he's supposed to be tracking. The conflict of that emotional involvement is often tragic, you know, clouding his objectivity, his ability to do his job and tell the truth without influence. But Jane also often gets involved because somebody has to. This is different from when Mickey would step in or escort Valerie out of a situation. Jane needs to keep Valerie in the frame. She needs to keep filming and to figure out how to get Valerie to stay in the moment long enough to tell us the truth. We're going to save the golden example of this for part three because, well, it's significant. But I want to zoom in on a couple other moments of Jane's involvement with Valerie. I think she develops a certain empathy for Valerie in the second episode when they go to the upfronts. Valerie is supposed to have a night on the town with the cast, and of course this means so much to her on so many levels. Obviously, she wants to be seen with these young new stars in New York, but she also just wants to be included. She wants to be in the in-crowd. So when she loses them after taking a phone call with Mark, we see this desperate scramble to find a loophole. All right, Jane, I know technically you're all not supposed to participate in my life, but... I'm hungry, and they're gone, so. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know where they went. You know what we can do? Okay, why don't we just rewind the tape? Because maybe sound picked it up. We can hear where they went. Maybe we could overhear it. We can't do that, because we can't. I'm sorry. Okay, that's all right. I get it, yeah. If you rewind, you might lose something. We can't risk that. I get it. Okay. Well, I don't have Juna's cell phone, so didn't know I'd be on a posse. (laughs) I just thought it was a big fun night out in New York. Um, Okay, hi. Did you see a group of kids? Can you hold on for one second? She's off, I'll ask her, because maybe she saw them, you know. It would be a shame not to have this, Jane. It would be a real shame. Kind of all of us out in New York. There is a, a way that the tears flicker in Valerie's eyes. She has such a capacity to hold it at bay, but Jane sees it. She sees what this means to Valerie, and I think in some ways she realizes that this is the real story. The exploitation side of this is, let's watch this pathetic D-list actress try to catch up, literally and figuratively, with these young kids. And maybe that's exactly what the edited version will show on TV. But the emotionally honest story, the story a producer like Jane Benson deep down really wants to tell, is one of a woman coming face to face with being left out once again. When Jane sees it, we see it. When Jane feels it, we feel it and we feel for Valerie. I think we see their connection really develop in episode three when Valerie gets everyone those Tiffany keychains as the first show gift. When she goes to give one to Paulie G, she walks in on him getting a blowjob because, you know, in the world of the comeback, of course she would. And, and then, of course, you know, tries to explain to him not to use the key attached to it, you know, because it's just for Mickey's storage unit in the valley uh, before, you know, hurrying away. Uh, you, can, you can hear Jane start to laugh and then Valerie turns and starts laughing as well. 
Jane, good luck getting whoever that was to sign a release. Hmm? <laughs> There's a brief shot of Valerie and Jane in the frame together laughing, and it feels so good to see Valerie in on the joke, to be laughed with instead of laughed at. It almost feels like an outtake that Laura Silverman and Lisa Kudrow ran with and turned into something real. I know that it's not, but the feeling of of true connection, the catharsis of shared laughter is so real here. I don't know how you script it. I had mentioned earlier a fun little moment between Jane and Valerie at the People's Choice Awards. Uh, chronologically, I'm jumping around a little bit, but I love when Valerie gives Jane the gift bag. Oh, Jane. Jane, got your goodie bag. Here you go. No, you want it. <laughs> Thank you. I do think that was just Valerie being nice in the same way that she still tips the guy at the valet at the end of episode three when she's left waiting for her car. Sure, she gets nervous after he comments on her watch and not so subtly wanders away and clutches her wrist protectively. But I think her decision to pay him after he offers not to charge her is that human side of her we crave. This moment with Jane felt similar. It's it's a sweet gesture, soured just slightly by the fact that she tells Juno right after to be careful using makeup from the goodie bag because it once gave her a rash. But I don't think that totally undermines the gesture. I think there are two other pivotal moments, at least before so much of what happens in the last two episodes of season one, that show Jane getting involved. One, of course, is during the infamous Palm Springs episode when she finds Polly G's number so Valerie can drunk dial him. We know at this point that Jane and the crew can't get involved, but in this case, she offers before Valerie can really even ask. Of course, she knows that drunken confrontations are reality TV gold, but as our proxy, she also wants Valerie to say something to Polly G. She wants it for the show, but I think she also wants it for Valerie. No one questions Jane. I think the the camera panning up to her dialing is deliberate, and it feels like the crew watching quietly while Jane basically does her job. Produce a TV show. However, I think one of the most significant Jane moments for me is in episode five, when they're filming Valerie making late night cookies for the writers. Homemade, you know, with with store-bought cookie dough, of course. Valerie's mic needs to get replaced at one point because, of course, she sweats too much, according to the creepy new sound guy. Valerie quickly makes up some rule about it needing to be a woman uh, to replace the mic, and she and Jane step into the hallway together. This is once again one of those assumed off-camera moments. Valerie apologizes and says she'd do it herself, but she's got cookie dough in her hands. Jane has probably done this a hundred times, so running a wire up inside the front of someone's shirt is purely procedural for her. But we see a sort of stunned reaction from Valerie. It's like an emotion crept in and snuck up on her and took hold before she could shake it away. There's something about the way Jane has to press the adhesive of the mic against her chest, seemingly between her breasts, right next to her heart. I think it'd be easy to read this scene with sexual undertones, even though we don't know Jane is a lesbian until season two. There's something incredibly intimate about this moment. I also noticed a vague trauma reaction from Valerie, especially in the way her eyes dart in panic when she needs Jane to tuck the wire in at the back. Again, it's all so deliberate. If she was just uncomfortable with a woman touching her body, I think it would be played lighter, like her interactions with the sound guy just before. And I think that'd be too easy. I like not knowing exactly why Valerie is having such a specific reaction to Jane touching her, but I do think it's specific to Jane. I wonder about how attached Valerie has gotten to Jane, and yet how much distance there is. The dividing line between being in front of and off camera is significant. It's like talking to someone on FaceTime and then meeting in person. Even though you've seen and interacted with one another, it was never real. The connection wasn't felt. It was interpreted and processed. I wonder if Valerie realizes in that moment of close proximity of actual connection that Jane is a person in her life right now. Perhaps she does feel something. 
I don't think we need to know Jane's a lesbian or even need Jane to be one for us to see Valerie feel something for her. I, and I don't think this, this is some latent same-sex attraction in Valerie getting awakened. I don't think this has anything to do with sex. Jane is like Valerie's dream come true. Someone whose job it is to listen to and watch her. Someone whose job it is to make her the star of something. Jane is featuring Valerie. She's hearing her. She's seeing her. She's giving her a concentrated stream of attention, which feeds her fame addiction in a deeper way. It's what YouTube and Instagram stars have been discovering for the past few years. Being on camera can make you feel like someone important, and it can make your life feel like it matters, like it's worth documenting. Valerie may have had her doubts when returning those sheets about the validity of all this, about the worthiness of her life on camera, but the fact that Jane hasn't stopped filming, hasn't stopped watching her, means that she must think Valerie is worth watching. She must think Valerie is enough. Of course, it's also Jane's job. She's contractually obligated to keep filming Valerie. But if she's seeing the same raw footage we are, if she's piecing together the same story we are, then we can assume she's seeing the same thing we are. Valerie Cherish may not be the famous TV personality she once was. She may no longer be TV's it girl. But in this brave new world of reality television, she is a star. That, my friends, is part two of Cherishing Valerie. And we've only got even more to come. Part three is really going to be diving into those moments where we get to see the real Valerie and the relationships and the people that really bring it out of her. But we will save all of that for part three. In the meantime, I'd love to hear from you. Let me know what you're thinking about uh, Cherishing Valerie, about in the details in general, about the comeback and what it's meant to you you can drop me an email at in the details pod at gmail.com you could reach out to me on twitter at colin drucker um you can also head over to itunes and you could leave me a hopefully five star rating and hopefully a positive review i don't even see the point of leaving a negative review you could just tell me what you don't like and then i'll change it but uh, I will probably air fry a lot of things to deal with my feelings about the fact that you don't like something on this podcast. But that's for me to deal with, not for you. Um, anyway, I think that's all I've got for now. Uh, I look forward to continuing this conversation with you next week as we continue to celebrate all of the acting choices, micro moments, and nuances in the details. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, everyone.